0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. 90-year-old William Shatner has become the oldest person to fly in space. I understand his rocket had its left turn signal on flashing the entire trip. Hey. Here's Scott hey. Thompson.
0: That's just not nice. Let it, respect. Sheesh. Get out the nude. It is 3:08. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board. Ted and Diana, of course, uh, in the newsroom. In and out. And uh, Ted picking the song today because initially you might have thought, "Wow, this is like a Rocky Chicago." No, no. not quite. 1970.
2: Uh, Nineteen.
0: Go ahead, explain 19, it to us. Ted 70, the song
2: today. Nineteen seventy was the year. That's a, a, a group called Vehicle. Um, one hit wonder, but it was massive. And the guy that sang the song, Jim Paterek, people don't know. He was nineteen years old when he recorded that vocal, and he sounds like in his forties. Incredible. I you were say Ninety? No, incredible, incredible vocal. Uh, great horn section, and just a great song. And, and you know. I when Will listens to it, he goes, "Yeah, I like it." So that proves to me that you know I've you know I've still got it. So
0: what amazes me is you and the love of the one hit wonder. I talked about this earlier, and and you even know the guy's name who Jim is the Peteric, singer on this yeah.
2: on this one hit wonder. Yeah. What is
0: with you and the one hit
2: wonder? I don't know. There there are some songs I actually like. You, I actually thought of another song that I would not dare have Will play on the air because it can be uh, a little. Uh, ribald, Spicy. as it were. Uh, yeah, dicey. Yeah, and, and it was out in 1972, and it was a one-hit wonder. But we're not going to go there. But there's a lot oh, of one. Well, hit- now we've got it here. You can't tease <laughs> no, us like that. No, I am away, not going to have him Come play. On. No, open the door, Dad. Come <laughs> Let's on. do it. Let's get blue. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want to <laughs> get blue. <no. laughs> <laughs> Diane is just holding her head. Yeah. Going, oh, anyway, so goodness. no, uh, there there are some one-hit wonders I don't like, but for some reason, that, and I think I know why. Uh, obviously, it's the killer horn section, but you know that one really, really jumps out. To me, again, I, I first heard it. To me, it sounds like a rocky Chicago. Yeah, it is, because like, well, it's what you love
0: about the Big Horns, all yeah. that sort of stuff. And then, yeah. but
2: it's just a bit of an edgier, raw sound to it. And it's interesting you mention that because Robert Lamb, the keyboard player and founding one of the founding members of Chicago, is now working in conjunction with the aforementioned Jim Paterek on some new material on an album that'll be released next year. So it's funny how the two kind of worked together there, hand in hand. Six degrees of uh, separation,
0: right there. Yeah. there, new- there there's your
2: Chicago connection. See? All musicians know each other, and they all working together. So uh, but that that song is just, like, I defy somebody to sit still when that song comes on.
0: Good point. Uh, Thank and you. In some way, just get up and walk out of the room. Well, no, no, I'm just no. kidding. Hey. hey, since you're here, I want your take. This is amazing information. Uh, Tiger Cats obviously hosting the Grey Cup uh, this December, but now uh to host 20 and 20 uh 2023 what are your thoughts on
3: this well
2: obviously this is something that they're giving back to the team because look this year they had talked about having the uh the uh south end zone yeah Yeah. uh, and it was kind of well we're not quite sure you know so no it's going to be 20 so basically it's going to be uh like a cfl game only it's the great cup but twenty four thousand seats that's it uh nothing in the yeah there'll probably be people standing in the end zone but certainly not what they had planned uh and business-wise it you know they can't make all that much revenue on a twenty-four thousand seat gray cup so uh next year in saskatchewan and then 2023 they'll have it back here and probably do the stuff that they wanted to do or maybe uh rejig it a little bit more for what will happen in 2023
0: I think this is an absolutely fabulous idea, and kudos to all involved for 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 coming up with this idea. Because we all know how long Hamilton has waited to host a Grey Cup, and then blamo, you get a a global pandemic right in the middle. Who could have seen that coming? Nobody. So to come around again and say let's do another one and let's do it right, I think this is a fabulous idea, and kudos to all who uh, who made it all happen.
2: Yeah, that would be December twelfth. So let's hope that the weather. Well, you know what. Weather can sometimes, as we know the last time the Grey Cup was here, the snow uh, in 1996, yeah. so 25 years. So um, let's just hope that that's a good ball game. And please, please, for all the people who have been on social media saying, I'm not going to support it if the Argos get in, you know what? the Grey Cups coming to Hamilton support it. It doesn't matter who's well, I know you want the Tiger cats in it, but if they're not in it and if it's the Argos, so what? There you go. Clearly, uh, see, a preview. Look, the of studio audience. See, look. They're oh, it. it's just one guy. Okay. <laughs> uh, clearly, we know
0: what we're going to talk about on the roundtable today. Coming up after the four thirty news, uh, Ted will be joining us moments from now for a tee up for the bottom of the hour. I think this, as I mentioned with Ted, it's a great idea, and uh, kudos to everybody involved. Uh, to, uh, to get another kick at the can outside of a global pandemic. What the heck? All right. Uh, still to come or coming up on the show today. Uh, tons of stuff to talk about. And we would have loved for you to be a part of it. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell. Uh, the poll question of the day. Should school dress codes be updated? Boy, you know, I think this is a discussion that they were having when I was in school uh and here we go again and for various different reasons and of course a, a completely different world uh than it was when I was there but uh it looks like Hamilton Wentworth district school board's going to chat about that that is uh the uh the poll question of the day should the board update the high school dress codes and it's for allowing
1: do you want? To, yeah, yeah, you want to know the stats right now? they're. Sure. I find them. It's 50-50. So anyone who's got an opinion really? on this has to jump in and weigh in online. Really? 50-50. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. So,
0: you know, and again, an age-old discussion. Yesterday's uh, poll question of the day uh, in regard to... Oh, hang on. I've lost it here. Oh, yes. Uh, will you drive to the U.S. after November when things open up? And, you know, they had various options. 62% still said no. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, again, passports, whatever people think things are going to open up. And yeah, I think it's going to take a little while before people are uh, are feeling comfortable about everything and enough to uh, jump from place to place, especially when we hear uh, that the U.S. is just starting to get a handle on what is going on. And look where Canada is. My goodness. All right, let's move on. Uh, I, I'm sure you remember the case in regard to Peter Cahill and and the shooting and the court decision. Now the Supreme Supreme Court of Canada says that Peter Cahill has to go back to trial for the fatal shooting of a First Nations member, that being John Stiers, after initially being acquitted. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Jeff Reed, barrister and solicitor specializing in criminal law and is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
4: Thanks, uh, Scott. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, and I hope I can contribute uh, a little bit to the public uh, understanding of this.
0: Are you surprised at this decision, that this has come out now?
4: A little bit. Uh, the court of appeal was uh, three to zero in deciding that the, the trial judge had uh, made a mistake and it needed to have a second trial. And the Supreme Court was, uh, I guess, uh, eight to one uh, deciding the same way. So um, I'm a little surprised, but uh, that's what's happened. The law is developing, and the law in um, self-defense has changed. It was revamped uh, several years ago, but not too long ago. Uh, They took a lot of the uh, complications out of it, made it somewhat simpler, but at the same time, they added some uh, new features, and that's what this case turns on, one of the new features. So, uh,
0: in answer to the question is why this is happening now, there is new information in regarding new laws that may affect the outcome of this.
4: Yeah, just to uh, sort of uh, give you a uh, one-minute summary of it, which is uh, like virtually impossible trying to, you know, summarize the Bible in in, in 20 seconds, but... uh Maybe not that extreme, but the thing is that uh, the law of self-defense, one of the essential elements of it is that uh, the act that's committed, that's the actual shooting in this case, has to be reasonable in the circumstances. And then the law went on and it said, so the reasonableness has to be determined according to a number of factors. So you've got to consider certain factors, but there could be others as well. It's not exhaustive. And one of the factors that's listed in the criminal code, it says the person's role in the incident. Right. So this is new territory. It really hasn't been developed much in the in the case law. This is an important case because it does develop that. And what the, uh, the Court of Appeal decided, and the Supreme Court has agreed, uh, that the trial judge did not address that correctly, meaning that the... Uh, jury was not given a sufficient instruction on how to uh, consider that, and because the jury wasn't given a su- sufficient uh, instruction on it, then the uh, jury's decision essentially becomes uh, not valid, uh, right. to put it in sort of blunt terms. And they say it's got to come back for another, uh, another uh, trial. So, so that's that's really it. And they they spent a lot of time in both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court deciding that. Even the dissenter in the uh, Supreme Court uh, didn't disagree with that analysis. But what, um, and it was uh, Justice Cote. Uh, she said, "Look, um, uh, you got to address that." But in this case. Uh, it wasn't uh, something that would make a material difference. In other words, the jury's decision wasn't uh, badly affected. Mm-hmm. The, the judge, the judge, did a sufficient job. But she was the only one that thought that. All the other judges decided that the uh, trial judge had not addressed that correctly. So, that's in yeah. a nutshell what what this is going on. Th- there's a lot of other factors. I mean, it's it's. It's quite a complicated uh, area in the sense that what's reasonable, the jury has to decide certain things. And this is one of the things that the jury must consider, and the judge has to tell them about it. Once the judge has told them, mind you, it's in their uh, bailiwick, and uh, there's almost no way to reasonably review what the jury makes of it. They decide what weight to put on it and how to consider it. But but if they're not told properly in the first place, then that's when the uh, appeal judges say, look... It just isn't good enough. It's one of the little, little. Uh, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here, and this isn't uh, somebody else's opinion, but although I think a lot of my colleagues might uh, agree, it's one of the little fictions of uh, the law about jury trials. You get um, complicated facts in some cases, you get complicated law, and the, the fiction, in a sense, um, is that, that if the jury is given the law correctly, as complicated as it may be, we believe the jury does their job correctly, and whatever decide comes out that's it and that's the problem in this case the so, trial judge hadn't outlined it properly
0: so let me ask you this jeff it says mr cahill's role in the incident should have been expressly drawn to the attention of the jury obviously the absence of any explanation concerning the legal significance of mr cahill's role in the incidents was a serious error that being said so the fact that that incident or, or that uh, that was not drawn to the attention of the jury is the situation with Mr. K, uh, Cahill's role in the incident, will that or would that have affected the case? What does that mean?
4: Well, that's exactly what it, well, what it means is that you can't just focus on that moment when the actual act occurs, the act in question being the shooting that resulted in the death of right. Mr. Stiers. It, it, you've got to focus on all of the behavior that's relevant to what happened, um, uh, 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 the conduct of the accused person that 's the factor that this addresses, and so it goes for, uh, more than just that moment in time and uh, the uh, mo- almost all the judges, with the exception of uh, Justice Cote in the Supreme Court, uh, had decided that there wasn 't a sufficient explanation to the jury to the l- mm. tell them what it means and what things they should consider in doing that and and how they should apply that. So one of the uh, the Court of Appeal it looked at this, and uh, their decision was upheld, although it 's not their decision we 're talking about, but it it was upheld, and so they said, "Look, you know on one view of the evidence mr cahills Role in the incident would not support his claim that he acted reasonably when he shot Mr. Stiers. Jury could conclude that Mr. Cahill acted recklessly, contrary to his military training, by arming himself with a loaded shotgun, sneaking up on Mr. Stiers, startling him when standing only a few feet away with a loaded shotgun. That was one view, but they also said, "Look, uh, there's another view, and uh, on that uh, view, uh, Mr. Cahill's conduct during the incident could uh, leading up." To the shooting supported the defense position that the shooting was reasonable in circumstances, and the jury could have concluded, as we know they did, apparently, that at the moment Mr. Cahill fired at Mr. Styers, he believed on reasonable grounds that Mr. Styers was armed and was about to shoot him. This all goes back to one central factor it 's so easy to say, but so hard to figure out and apply in real life. Uh, cases, and th- and that is what was this a reasonable act, and so so this this question of the person's role in the incident is one of many factors, mm. but unfortunately, it's a mandatory factor. And if the courts, as they have looked at it, said that it wasn't sufficiently explained to the jury, then it invalidates the jury's right. decision.
0: Jeff Reed with us, barrister and solicitor specializing in criminal law. The Supreme Court of Canada says Peter Cahill has to go back to trial for the fatal shooting in 2016 of First Nations member John Stiers. Thank you so much, Jeff. I uh, appreciate that in a short period of time. Be well.
4: You're you're welcome, uh, and uh, have a pleasant afternoon. And I see you've got a really heavy agenda and lots of interesting things. I wish I had the time to take out from work to listen to some more of it. <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, here we go again with the Canadian Armed Forces. Allegations of uh, historical sexual misconduct have surfaced against, uh, have surfaced uh, in regard to Lieutenant Trevor Cadu leading a pause on his promotion to command the Army. What is happening in this culture of the Canadian Armed Forces? It seems as soon as somebody is promoted, uh, they're quickly investigated and dropped from the list is there anybody left when you think about the higher ranks of the canadian armed forces and how you know this is hitting those at the very top let's bring in charlotte duval uh charlotte duval uh lantuan ottawa operations manager and fellow with the canadian global affairs institute in ottawa charlotte thanks for the time hope you're doing well
5: hi scott thanks for having me
0: Charlotte, we keep hearing this over and over again. As soon as one top person gets replaced, we hear accusations about the next. Are you surprised about this latest, Charlotte?
5: No, I'm not surprised at all. Because if you study um, the integration of women in the Canadian Armed Forces since at least combat positions were open in 1989. This has been a, a repeated problem. And because gender integration was not dealt with properly, mm. you find yourself with a culture that, that is rife with uh, incidents of sexual misconduct. So now that we have some sort of reckoning, well, accusations are catching up on, on some of the most senior leaders. Does
0: this all go back to gender inter- integration?
5: I would say yes, because um, the Canadian forces decided to take an approach that was adding what we call adding women and stirring. That is to say, just let women in, but not addressing the cultural barriers right. to their entrance to the Canadian Armed Forces and and their well-being. And and because of that, some of the resentment that that was sparked to the poor integration of women were ne- were never or barely addressed. And so, because of that, um, it's not the f- it, it's not the first reckoning that we were supposed to have. We one of the very first crises of sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces was at least in 1998, with uh, McLean's publishing uh, allegations after allegations, and uh, that that involved people that that were that were still um, like revealed to this day. So, how long have so, yeah. how long
0: have been women in the Canadian armed forces? Because a lot may not understand how 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 short this period has been. How when were women allowed into the Canadian armed forces?
5: So they have been allowed for quite a while, um, especially um, like w- w- you could look as far as back as the nor- Northwestern Rebellion. But when we talk about women being included as peers. You would yeah. look at uh, for World War One and World War II. Uh, then they were disbanded, and then some reopening happened um, in the 60s, 70s. But the most significant step was in 1989 when the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal decided that the Canadian Armed Forces needed to open combat position. Right, so this started uh, in- with
0: combat positions. So really, they opened the doors, but they really didn't set any new standards at that time.
5: No, and uh, and, the, and many continue to argue that any differential policies, i.e., that is to say policies that would better adapt to women, were preferential treatment. So basically what happened is that women would be treated on a male standard, and if mm-hmm. we understand biology a little bit, women and men are not exactly the same they have different needs and they have different ways of doing things and that adaptation has has not really come when it was needed to come and so right now we have some plain catch-up on that but because of that anything that was done to better adapt women's integration in the canadian armed forces were seen as preferential treatment and there was resentment and that fed into um a culture that was already quite masculinistic at the time and that remained unaddressed for a long, long time.
0: So obviously this goes right to the core and you've explained it beautifully, Charlotte. So moving forward, how do you, because this is not going to be something that's done overnight. How, how do you move forward with this, Charlotte?
5: Recognizing that it is something that is not going to happen overnight is important, but it's also important that to... That is certainly Did no we, excuse,
0: Charlotte, and I didn't mean to make it sound that way. Go ahead.
5: No, 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 no. But what I mean is that a lot of people use this idea that it's going to take a while to say that it's just a generational change and we just need to let the old guard leave and the new guard uh, come in. But the problem is that the new guard is socialized by the old guard. Yeah. So I I think that the most proactive and first stance that we need to, to take is change the reward system. And, uh, and fully understand that sometimes zero tolerance policy can ba- backfire. In that, if you have a zero tolerance policy, but that leaves um, discipline to the discretion of a lot of people who have a neck, like their neck in the game, then not a lot of punishment and discipline is going to happen, especially that the Canadian Armed Forces need to. Um, tend, sorry, to uh, favor output over uh, ethics or or proper conduct sometimes, um, and and we have seen that in the case of Vance being or Aiden Edmondson. I, I would rather use the case of Aiden Edmondson in that in this specific instance instance because. Eden Emmonsen was known as a belligan man. He was known for his sexual misconduct, but he was still he still ended up being um, chief of military personnel, which is the highest HR position in the military. And and so addressing that reward system first might tackle some of the sexual misconduct. Um, Issues are happening right now and might put people in their lane and then implement Mm. uh, further policy.
0: Good point. Uh, obviously, you've got to, you've got to address this, uh, during the promotional phase. Uh, and I stand corrected by you, Charlotte. Charlotte Duval-Lantoine with us, Ottawa Operations Manager and Fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute in Ottawa. Historic sexual misconduct again in the Canadian Armed Forces. And Charlotte pointing down, uh, back to obviously 1989 when women went into combat roles and things need to change. Uh, Charlotte, thanks so much. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Dave writes, in regard to the Grey Cup, uh, th- and I think this is fabulous, uh, not only Hamilton hosting the, you know, pandemic Grey Cup, but giving us another kick at the can in 23 to hopefully hopefully be involved in a full-scale celebration. Uh, Dave said, great news. I was at the Grey Cup in 96. I never had so much fun cheering against the Argos. See, there you go. Uh, Uh, in regard to dress codes which we're going to talk about on the round table coming up in about an hour uh, maybe teachers should be presented with a mandatory dress code as well Uh, and you may not like this but tattoos ought to be frowned on too or at least discouraged for both students and education uh, uh, faculty uh, says frank and in regard to the gray cup 2023 John says there will be very entertaining, as by then we should be up to our ears in LRT construction. Please, can we move on? We're celebrating a second gray cup. Uh, and Dave, on Ted selection, sounds like blood, sweat, and tears as well. I think vehicle had another smaller hit in the mid-70s. Uh, Great selection from Ted. So there you go. Uh, yes, uh, the crew get to pick the top hour tune. Ted picked uh, vehicle uh, Eyes of March. Uh, I believe, uh, as his selection. And you will hear it again at the top of the hour. Uh, we were talking about this uh, over a year ago. Uh, and now new information has come to light about Canada's ill fated COVID 19 vaccine deal uh, with China. And this coming out of the CBC that the federal government's failed collaboration with a vaccine manufacturing company in China early in the pandemic has led to a delay of nearly two years in efforts to create a made in Canada COVID 19 vaccine. Government documents obtained show that Canadian officials wasted months and waited for a proposed vaccine to arrive from China for further testing and spent millions upgrading a production facility that never made a single dose of COVID-19 vaccine. To talk more about all of this, Andrew McDougall is with us, professor of political science, University of Toronto, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well, too uh we talked about yes thank you so much we talked about this uh, i guess maybe three four five six months into the pandemic nobody seemed to care too much we were so much in the midst of it all at that point what has changed now what has come to light
6: well i mean i think at this stage uh you know the, uh, the pandemic has begun to a certain extent to recede a little bit uh, I mean, we've now gotten to the point where, at least here in Ontario, we're getting close to 90% of people having at least one dose. Over 80% have two, so people are feeling a little bit better about this. But I think what's begun is a little bit of a reevaluation about how the country looked, uh, you know, handled uh, the pandemic, and and in particular things like procuring vaccines. And so, uh, some of this information is now starting to come out, and I think there's going to be a little bit of an accounting on on how governments have performed in the face of that crisis.
0: And, obviously, we certainly know that uh, this deal had been signed with Cansino. They were working on, uh, and this is a research arm of, of China's military, uh, and then they were supposed to send a sample, I guess, here, uh, to Canada, and then all of a sudden, things came to a grinding halt, and that vaccine never did arrive. Although, did go to to other nations. What is happening with that facility now? Because I understand that Novavax was involved with this, uh, or is waiting for it now. What happened to the facility that Kansina was supposed to be involved in?
6: Oh, well, I have no idea what happened to the uh, what happened to the facility now, or or what's going on with it, but. I mean, what was clear at the time was that there were, that Canada was facing what was quite abruptly realized to be a shortfall in its capacity to uh, research vaccines and to produce vaccines. And this was something that was getting wide commentary at the time. And what this appears to be is one of several efforts that the government tried to do to get on top of that. Um, and what we're now seeing is, is sort of the result of what happened with that, which is that it didn't come to fruition and, and some of the problems that the government was facing at a time when it was facing enormous public pressure to, to um, figure out how to, to deliver vaccines domestically. Um, I think there's going to be uh, you know, a lot more to come on these kinds of stories as Canada sort of reevaluates how it allowed vaccine capacity to atrophy and why, what we need to do to stay on top of, uh, on top of the next pandemic.
0: Sure Andrew, many were asking, country. even way back when, why would you even get into a deal with China like this? I mean, and I know there was past uh, situations with, with SARS and such where they had had successful collaboration, but that was long before the two Michaels and, 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 and hostage diplomacy. So many are even asking why we would venture down this. Why, why are we using this as an option?
7: I, mean, I think you have to put
6: yourself back in the context of early twenty twenty. When you know we really were in sort of the peak of the crisis, and I think really any realistic possibility of getting good vaccines, of researching and finding, you no know, effective vaccines, was the top of mind for everybody. And I think it makes a lot more sense to reach out, uh, you know, to whatever partners you can to find, know, uh, solutions in that context. So it doesn't surprise me that you know if there was a possibility of a fruitful collaboration, even if it was with China, if that was available, that the government would be looking into pursuing it. Of course, that didn't work out for reasons that were now. Uh, you know, we're now realizing. Uh, but, of course, it would have been one of many different options that the government was looking at and, and would have pursued.
0: So was this a big deal? I mean, obviously, we're finding out what's really happened, we, uh, happened which is confirmation of what we thought initially. Uh, and, you know, still two years have passed, and this facility has yet to produce anything. Uh, is this a big deal? Is this, is this news or not?
6: Yeah, it's news, and it, it's news because it, it really flows into what's a wider conversation beyond just this vaccine when the When the pandemic hit, you know there was a realization on, on I think on the part of everybody in Canada that the country really didn't have any or sufficient uh, vaccine making capabilities for this particular crisis. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion about sort of what had happened there, what more needs to be done. You know, we had technical expertise and had made different types of vaccines, but this particular uh, area seemed to be an area, a place where we were struggling.
0: Uh, and so uh, we all we all know, Andrew, that governments don't make vaccines. It's private industry and big pharma that makes vaccine. Are we doing enough to change the scenario so that we can work in collaboration with big pharma and have these facilities here? Because a lot are a lot are saying, you know, well, you know, we had the capacity to do that and we got rid of it all. Well, really, what happened is we got rid of the incentive for companies to be here doing it, and we sort of took an anti-big pharma stance. Is that going to change?
6: Well, I mean, there was a lot of discussion, for example, with the Conant Labs and what had happened with that, uh, and some discussion over the last, you know, 20 odd years or so, whether or not the country had allowed vaccine capacity to deteriorate essentially because of a combination of things, one of which would have been lack of of government attention. And there was a huge amount of attention that was paid on to that. Uh, and this particular story is news because it feeds into this narrative about is the country ready for the next pandemic? You know, are we going to be ready to? Uh, Manufacture vaccines uh, when we need them. Where we have, you know, the private capacity to do it. Will we have the government incentive in place to do it. And here is an example of where, you know, the country was looking, for really whatever option it had, and it fell apart, um, you know, pretty quickly. So it's going to be evaluated in light of this wider discussion about what the country needs to do to ensure it's ready for the next uh, public health crisis.
0: It was interesting. I remember talking to people like uh, Providence Therapeutics, I believe it was, and and pretty much had the door slammed on them by the Canadian government, and that was a Canadian solution. Uh, again, are we doing enough to attract these sorts of uh, of industries?
6: Oh, well, whether or not we are or not is something you're going to have to ask a public health expert. But it's definitely going to be a political discussion going forward. Yeah. And now, again, as the uh, you know pandemic begins to recede, I think these stories are going to become you know, much more part of the discussion about how we sort of look back retrospectively of how the country handled it, what was going on at the time, and whether or not the, the federal government was effective in meeting these challenges, and the provincial government as well. So this is news. This is the kind of uh, information that people are going to want to know about. They're going to want to sort of see what the history was on some of these files, and sort of evaluate whether or not, you know, the country is doing what it is it needs to do uh, to stay on top of of, you know, public health crises as they come up.
0: Andrew McDougall with us, professor of political science, University of Toronto. New information coming to light about Canada's ill-fated COVID-19 vaccine deal with China. Andrew, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. No problem. You too. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900-CHML. It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board and Ted and Diana around the big round table. I got some email on your, uh, uh-huh. on my which pick. was Vehicle Ides, Ides, what is it, Vehicle Ides, Ides of March? Ides
2: of March, 1970.
0: There you go. And, and the person thought it sounded like blood, sweat, and tears. Yes, there you go. it does. A uh, little bit know, of that. Yep, yep. But- uh, all right, let's get the old 45s off the round table and talk about the issues of the day. Grey Cop uh, times two. We talked about this a bit at the beginning of the show. I think this is an absolutely incredible gesture, a great idea, and, and it's great that we didn't talk about it for two or three months or whatever or a year and then eventually do it, uh, that they've just bang, bang, bang announced it before this Grey Cup game is even played. Your thoughts? Let's start with you, Ted.
2: Well, uh, obviously this year's will be scaled back because of what's been happening and they want to make sure that everybody's uh, safe. And I know that they were talking about the end zone, having a big party zone there, but that's not yeah. going to happen this year. So it'll be a 24th. So basically it'll be like a home game um, when the Tiger Cats are playing with 24,000 people in the stadium and that's about it. So obviously you can't make money on a 24,000 seat stadium for the Grey Cup unless you're charging a lot of money for the tickets, which they won't. Uh, so um, this is almost like Okay, we know you're suffering from the COVID. Uh, We'll give you the Grey Cup in 2023, and you can really promote it uh, and do uh, a lot more than what you can do this year because, of course, uh, we're still being cautious with COVID just to be on the safe side. Thoughts, Diana?
3: Yeah, I'm sort of agreeing there with Ted. I mean, uh, you know, this this Grey Cup that we had, I mean, I have season tickets and we got tickets for the Grey Cup a while ago. But I feel like a lot of people didn't and they hesitated because of the pandemic. And so I feel like this time around, it maybe wasn't, uh, you know, given our our fair shot because a lot of people are still on the fence about whether to go to these things. But I think by next year, um, Hamilton will get what it really deserves, which is the full Grey Cup experience, hopefully packed house.
0: And, Will, yeah, I actually got an email from somebody saying, and I think I read this on the air. Uh, well, that'll be great because it'll uh, be right at the height of the LRT construction. Man, do we have to bring that in? Isn't this a great idea oh, for the man. city? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't bring me down.
2: <laughs> that is so Hamilton. I'm sorry. <laughs> that It is. It is, isn't it? Womp, I can't believe womp. it. But yeah. they do have a point,
0: though. <laughs> Well, you know. All right. So let's cancel the Grey Cup until, uh, until 2027. People uh. complain about parking now. <laughs> They'll be, a, you know, we'll be in COVID 2025 by then. Oh, well, yeah, my not. goodness. We
3: let's can add the it. 17th wave.
2: And, yeah.
1: And get the land, the urban boundary expansion debate mixed in there
2: with the LRT and the Grey yeah. Cup. I can get three cars on my driveway, just so you know. You know there we'll you go. Park. All right.
0: All right, let's go to the dress code issue, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, and I do not envy any of them that have to debate this. This has been something I remember having this debate when I was in school uh, in regard to dress code and changing of the dress code. Diana, we'll start with you. Does the dress code need to be addressed?
3: It's hard for me to say. I mean, I went to a Catholic school, so I always had a uniform, and there was people yeah. commenting on my uniform left, right, and center, you know. Uh, your, your skirt's too short, your skirt's too long, yeah. you're wearing the wrong pants, you can't wear those shoes. So
0: so does, that, does the uniform help, or does that just add more complication?
3: I think it added more complication. I don't know. I, I really don't know, but I, I feel like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, very, it's a very sticky subject.
0: Will, do you want to show your tummy at school?
1: I don't know if anyone wants to see mine, but uh, I think... I think they do need to update the dress code. I think there's too much of a of a uh, an outdated morality that we tie into a lot to do with uh, fashion, and that's something that's always evolving. Um, obviously, you know, you want I guess to in some hand people are like, well, should know how to dress for different occasions. Sure, that's fine, but we're talking about a changing culture and all sorts of things, and I think we ought to update our dress codes to go with it. The only caveat I would add is it's always good to have some outlet, some sort of rebellion. Uh, where you could at least irk your parents by wearing a, a stupid hat or uh, ugly boots or something like that. That's you dye your hair green. Irk spike your in. parents.
4: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> oddly enough, I'm I'm watching Jimmy Kimmel last night. Uh, uh, Billy Eilish is on, and they showed a picture of her high school choir. They're all dressed in the same uniform. They all have dark hair except for her. She's dressed in bright orange or something with pink hair, and she stood out. And I don't think the rest of the uh, the rest of the choir won a Grammy. Anyway, Ted, what do you think? Uh, do you remember the tube top?
2: Uh <laughs> <laughs> Did I wear what? No, the tube top. Yeah, I honestly, I I can't comment on this because you know uh, this. When I went to high school, it was such a long time ago. And <laughs> but I, don't you remember where there not discussions about? Maybe it was no, more
0: in my generation. No, there was discussions it, like, know, "Hey, why can't this, we show our bellies?"
2: No, listen, as a guy who has never been on the cover of, of GQ, you're asking the wrong guy about fashion here. So, you
3: know. Oh my. <laughs>
2: So,
0: so do you think we'll arrive at anything, though, Diana? Do you think that this will change anything? What What is the new guideline that now uh, girls are allowed to show their belly? I mean, it reminds me of the Shania Twain and Madonna days.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen here. I just, uh, you know, I kind of agree with Will. There has to be something we ought to do to rebel. I mean, we can't just make everyone wear, um, you know, the same thing. And I I don't know. I I,
0: I, I So, go ahead. There's got to go be will. some
3: guidelines, though. There's got to be some It needs to be updated for sure, but there needs to be some guidelines still.
1: I think the key issue here is the fact that this is also coming on the heels of uh, 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 incidents.
0: They've been saying that forever, though. I remember them saying that during my day. I just say to my daughter, don't you have a burlap sack? Don't you have something else you can put on over top of that? Uh, I want to talk a little bit, and this is kind of serious and and maybe political, but boundary expansion. And and the only reason I want to talk about this is simply, you know, my generation, it was, you know, uh, we got to stack everybody up like cordwood. Uh, There's too much urban sprawl. We got to stop all of this even though canada is a vast uh, area uh l- let's build tons of condos and build up instead of out uh, i'm not saying urban sprawl but what happened to smart cities building communities and such uh, people don't want to be stacked up like cordwood anymore post uh, post pandemic and again we're not living in europe what are your thoughts uh ted i'll start um,
2: with you i you know what <laughs> I understand people don't want to as you say be stacked up like cordwood but how far out do you expand before a lot of the farmland is taken there's that fine line between city and urban sprawl and uh, they're trying to make sure that the two are you know connected nicely and I that argument will I'm sure, continue, because I know that when you drive through Hamilton, now you're seeing a lot of construction of condos, and now people are complaining, oh, the 25-story condos going up downtown. Well, what's the alternative? What would you like? Good point. Diana? Diana?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I agree with Ted. I mean, I think we got to build up because there has to be more affordable housing for sure. And I think that building up allows for that to happen. Whereas if we keep just going out and building detached homes or expensive townhomes, I mean, it's not going to work for people. I think we definitely need some, uh, you know, good quality, affordable housing. And the only way that's but does happen. it all?
0: Does it always have to be in high rise? I mean, what about families? There was just a, a new poll out in Hamilton where uh, young people are complaining they can't afford a house anymore. Well, that's here. what I mean.
3: I mean, no, it doesn't have to be high rises. But I think overall, just giving people the option of maybe of maybe doing that, um, you know, having you know so that they can purchase a home. Again, I I don't think people
0: should be scared of building. I really don't. Building seems to be a bad word in Canada. And again, as long as we do it responsibly, as long as we create smart cities and smart transportation, you know, uh, I think we should expand a bit. Anyway, thank you, roundtable. As always, uh, Diana Weeks, Ted Michaels, and Will Erskine with us, uh, and we'll join us again tomorrow at the same bat time. Uh, Last Friday, the government of Ontario lifted capacity limits on stadiums, arenas, and such. We saw the home opener for the Maple Leafs, obviously, last uh, last night. But uh, restaurants, gyms, similar businesses were left out. And initially, when we uh, booked Dr. Colin Furness, we were going to ask whether it was fair to have one open and and not the other. However, uh, since all of that, word has come down that there will be an announcement tomorrow around 11 a.m. We will cover that live uh, tomorrow on CHML at 11. 11 a.m., and the Ontario government expected to allow, or announce, rather, an easing of restrictions in Ontario. Is this a good idea? Is it too soon? Are we learning anything from other provinces around us? Or have we got to the point of uh, as many, so many being vaccinated that this is the logical move forward? Let's bring in Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalhousie School of Public Health. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you do doing- well i am thanks initially when we uh set this up we were going to ask you about you know stadiums is that right uh as opposed to restaurants obviously now we're hearing that there is new information coming tomorrow at 11 a.m that will announce a bit of an easing of these restrictions what are your thoughts doctor of this and and seeing stadiums and in you know the the uh, arena last night in toronto full and such uh, is it time to do this
8: Stadiums. And, you know, I want them open. I want pro sports. I want normal life. I don't want them filled to capacity. I think that is, that's frankly reckless. Um, I, I think we can wait a little bit with full capacity until we vaccinated our kids under 12 and that's coming soon, and until we've done third booster shots for people over 65, and, you know, that's that's underway. So I think there's that we need a little bit of patience there. A giant gathering of tens of thousands of people, we saw what happened in Europe outdoors with the Euro Cup. It spawned a wave. Now, our vaccination's pretty good, but let's not pretend this is safe. It's not safe. Yeah. And, and I can only imagine that there was some lobbying done. I want to see the stadiums much less than half full for a while. And And the reason I want to have them open is that it may actually, or one reason is that it may actually spawn more people to uh, to get vaccinated if they can go to the hockey game if they can go to the baseball game if that exists that's another reason to get vaccinated so you know i'm in favor i just don't want to be reckless with <laughs> restaurants I, you know i think we should we, we've done this backwards i think we should have paid attention to restaurants first i think um I'm, I'm a little concerned with bars that get really crowded cheek and jowl but if you just think about your typical restaurant i think we want them open full capacity as patio season winds down as they're they're forced to check vaccination records that that's That's a huge onus on them. Let's let them thrive in, in exchange. And the only other caveat there would be we should actually require air filtration, if not better ventilation, and we should be paying for that. The taxpayers should be paying for that. Our restaurants have been brutalized, uh, and, and so to say that they then have to spend money to do that I think isn't fair. But I, I want I want to see restaurants full, and I want to see the air filtered, and I, and, I, and, I, and I then I'd have no qualms at all.
0: Yeah, and you bring up a, val- a, very, a very valid point, Doctor, in regard to vaccination, and although our rates are very high and we should all be proud of that, we're still not at the point where the the kids under 12 are protected. How much of a factor is that in what you're saying?
8: Oh, it matters. I mean, the the threshold for herd immunity is, you know, that, that goalpost keeps changing because it depends on how contagious the virus is and how effective the vaccine is, and both of those are in flux but it's probably around 90%. And we have to stop talking about the eligible population. That's a marketing term. COVID doesn't care who's eligible. We need to talk about whole population. With the whole population, we're in the low 70s. So we still have a long way to go. Once we can inoculate kids, we'll, we'll have a huge jump toward 90. And we can get there. It's achievable. There's no question in my mind it is. But we need to, we just, we can't negotiate with COVID. We know what we need to do to be safe and, and what we need to do to get there.
0: You talked about having stadiums at uh, opening them, but at, at, a, at a smaller capacity. I was talking to a restaurateur yesterday, and, and they were hoping that once the whole vaccine certificate program was in place, that things would take off for them. And the opposite happened. It, it just it kind of plateaued and, and then went down. He was saying anecdotally, people are still fearful of this, yet you look at what happened in Toronto last night at the Leaf game, you think, well, they don't seem to be too fearful, but that's a small minority of the population. What is it going to take, do you think, Colin, to ease the fear of people?
8: I I think we're all discovering that snapping back to normal is actually psychologically difficult for a lot of people. And I mm. think it's not just restaurants. I talk to my barber. Business is not all the way back. Well, people's hair certainly hasn't stopped growing. And, you know, my barber is really small. It's, it, this is not a scary, dangerous place. So th- that's going to be a process. But I think, I think that will accelerate. The more we see case numbers come down, the happier and more confident people will be. But again, when restaurants can step up and say, we're, we've got HEPA filters, we're filtering, we're, we're filtering our air this is a safe place i think that'll be really good for business so it's going to take some patience and i have huge sympathy for the restaurant business uh you know it's a sector that i have said is, is extremely dangerous and i meant it when i said it and and i mean it just as well to say that with proof of vaccination and clean air we should be we should be we should be supporting them in every way we can
0: uh you brought up another valid point uh doctor in that you know we can't be pinned down for a year and a half and expect to come out as if nah, nothing ever happened it just doesn't happen does it
8: it's, it's true, and I think I'm, I'm finding that within my family. I'm finding that within my work colleagues, uh, with the students that I teach. There was certainly an emphasis on students preferring online this year, not in person, which surprised me, but then again, it isn't surprising because of that sense of, am I really doing this? Am I really going in person? Does this feel okay? It's, it's pretty tough, but I, I suspect normal will reassert itself maybe faster than we think, just not as fast as we had hoped.
0: Dr. Colin Furness with us, epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalalana School of Public Health. As always, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. MPP Donna Skelly still to join us. Uh, from Flamborough-Glanbrook in regard to Hamilton's urban boundary expansion and lifting capacity uh, in Ontario. It, it looks like that will be announced tomorrow at about 11 a.m. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Uh talk about uh, a couple of things with Michael, including uh, what we just mentioned and Doug Ford government catching flack for not lifting the restrictions on restaurants before arenas. And also an interesting issue, members of the uh, Conservative Party saying Aaron O'Toole's tough stance on China played a, played a part in costing him the, uh, the election. Michael Tobe is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
7: Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Hope you are, too.
0: Uh, First of all, let's start with the provincial government and the restrictions. Should they have opened up uh, the restrictions for restaurants before arenas?
7: I think it would have been fine if they'd done them both at the same time. And I know that obviously the numbers are different that we're talking about. The average seating in a restaurant is obviously far smaller than a a baseball stadium, a football arena, etc., etc. But um, I don't see anything wrong with doing it part and parcel. I think where people really got frustrated, and I'm sure you've talked about it already on your show, Scott, is the fact that the sports stadiums opened up so readily and went up to full capacity while the restaurants were basically twiddling their thumbs, watching money fall away, watching businesses collapse, watching people go out of work, and it just wasn't logical at all. So I don't think it matters which one went first. I think it would have been just best if all of them had been done at the same time. It's an all or nothing scenario. You either open them all up or you just or you close them all down. And closing them all down, as we know, throughout the pandemic has not been a wise economic strategy.
0: And tomorrow at 11 a.m. we will cover that news conference live with all the details on the relaxing of certain uh, restrictions and such. All right, Michael, let's talk about uh, Aaron O'Toole. Apparently there's a small group within the Federal Conservative Party who say that Aaron O'Toole's tough stance on China played a part in costing him the election. Uh, yeah. Can you win an election in Canada and still chi- uh, be critical of the Chinese Communist Party?
7: He most certainly can. (laughs) I know it's being said, it's a nonsensical argument. It's not even a a non-starter as well. Um, Look, I mean, obviously, a lot of people are tying it to what one of the members who has now been suspended for, I believe, up to 60 days, a fellow Bert Chen, who was was on the Conservative National Council and basically came up with a proposal to either recall or re-examine the leadership of Uh, Aaron O'Toole on his own, which, number one, the is not supposed to do, and number two, that's a party measure, done through MPs, through leaders, through others. It's not done through people who are unelected members sitting on a council who think that they know best in an issue like that. And with respect to China, no, you can obviously have a very strong stance against China and get elected, as we've seen in not only this country, but other countries around the world. And while there certainly are some people... And there are certain members of the Chinese community or Chinese-Canadian community who were frustrated or a little irritated at Mr. O'Toole for doing it based on the way that we've, uh, that Canada-China relations have been handled as of late. You know, from Huawei Technologies, Meng Wanzhou, the two Michaels, and various other things, I think a tough on China stance, like it or not, is not only popular from coast to coast to coast in this country, it's the right strategy for a politician to hold. So
0: if by suggesting that being critical of China, and as you said, over 90% of Canadians do not have a favorable view of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, by suggesting that, you know, uh, by by talking tough uh, regarding China has cost you the election, is that further proof? that china is trying to interfere in canadian elections is this the opposite side of that that this is a group that is trying to be pro-china uh communist party within the conservative party
7: well look i mean obviously there are going to be shall we say pro-china sentiments that exist not only in political parties, but throughout our society. You're but pro-China is different.
0: Pro-China is different than pro-Chinese uh, Communist yeah. Party.
7: Oh, no, no. I agree with you. I mean, some people do it part and parcel, and that's what I was going to say. Um, there are certainly people who live in this country, even though we're a democracy, who either feel that Communist China should be treated in a different fashion, or privately they're supportive of it, regardless of the fact. Um, there's no. It's it's hard to say whether. China is necessarily trying to, quote-unquote, infiltrate our elections. I mean, obviously, we've talked about Russia and the United States during Donald Trump's presidency. We know that, obviously, totalitarian uh, governments and rogue states, like communist China, try to intervene in all different sorts of things and try to put their fingers on a whole bunch of pies, or as many pies as they possibly can. Um, It just, you know, you can't be conspiratorial. You can't go that far to say that. But at the same time, to say that a tough-on-China policy cost Aaron O'Toole the election to even suggest or elude it, it's nonsense, as I said And asking him
0: to resign as a result of that, Michael.
7: Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, this is basically what happens when, you know, an election goes poorly, there are people who are disgruntled, this is bound to happen, every political party faces it, this is just kind of some of the nonsense that unfortunately the Conservative Party at Canada is facing, but... Again, not to be a broken record, but to repeat, Aaron O'Toole did not win the last federal election, or the most recent one in September, um, as we know, but he did lose it because of his position on communist China. Far from it.
0: Uh, I'm surprised this even made headlines, and it wasn't kind of laughed right off the floor anyway, especially coming from the Conservative Party, but that's uh, that's the media. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
7: My pleasure. You too, Scott. Forget about his two cents. Scott has an entire
0: vault filled with opinions. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about lifting of capacity limitations in Ontario, especially uh, after arenas and stadiums uh, have been opened up. And urban boundary expansion. Let's bring in MPP for Flamborough glanbrook Donna Skelly. She is with us now. Donna, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
9: I love your new time slot. I love it, love it, love it. I get thank you. Me you too. Time when I'm driving.
0: I know. Here, here. I, I'm hearing Great. you. I've got a few more ears. I'm loving that. Um, so let's <laughs> get right to the right to the hot stuff here with uh, with the Conservative Party being criticized because the arenas and such were opened up prior to the restaurants. Should this have been done the other way around?
9: I don't think so. I think that, uh, the timing is obviously an issue for restaurants, but the reality is that the return to place protocols for these major venues are far more stringent than any of the restrictions that are currently in place for restaurants or gyms. And they're also, um, they, their ventilation, their air exchange is, uh, is much, much, much better. Than most of the smaller venues that you would see there having um, restaurants uh, so I, I think I understand why restaurants are upset restaurant owners, restaurant operators are anxious and upset. I've heard from many, many of them, many of them are friends, and they're struggling, and they couldn't understand why we would do this. But this is just one step, and you will see changes coming in the next few weeks. Dr. Moore is very aware as as you've mentioned in the newscast that we just heard at uh, five thirty he is looking at the numbers the numbers look good ontarians have been doing an exceptional job getting vaccines we still have a little work to do in hamilton but overall we have made great progress and i expect that you'll see relaxed protocols uh, in the weeks ahead we also of course had a, had thanksgiving and again the numbers didn't spike so this is all good and it looks it's very positive to move out of the restrictions that we currently have. We don't want to be in this, believe me. We do want to plan an exit strategy. But I think getting the uh, major events that had, as I said, much stricter uh, protocols in place, let them open up, and then we'll move into uh, the next phase, which is addressing gyms and restaurants.
0: Uh, news conference tomorrow at 11 a.m. will we hear more on this? We'll, I mean, obviously it's a news conference tomorrow, so you can't spill the beans, but are we going to hear more, do you think, on the relaxation of capacity limits for restaurants and such?
9: I think you'll hear opportunities that we will um, be certainly looking at it. Tomorrow we will be introducing the new passport, online passport, if you will, and we will be able to, it's the new app. People will be able to download the app. I think that that'll probably be more of the focus of the news conference. Right. And you won't be able to use it yet. It won't be uh, actually live until the 22nd, but you can download it and have it ready to go so you don't have to show the paper um, uh, passport or certification. That is one step towards relaxing more measures for restaurants.
0: So we're going to hear more about the app tomorrow than we are probably about the relaxing of restrictions. Is that accurate? And I know I'm asking you questions you can't answer.
9: Uh, We will hear more about it, but I can assure you the media is going to be asking questions about relaxing measures. And it's all part and parcel of our step moving out of these restrictions and and into a more um, open society, getting back to a little bit more of a normal life that we saw two years ago.
0: All right. Let's talk about urban boundary uh, expansion. Uh, normally, this is a snoozer for most, pe- most people. They don't even care about this sort of stuff. However, uh, unless, of course, you're in the extremes. Uh, however, a COVID-19 global pandemic has changed a lot of people's attitudes on this. And, and it seems to me that the word build has become a bad word in Ontario over the last uh, governments or, or, or such. Is there are not a way to build smartly or do we just have to put up with what we have now and let people just keep moving farther and farther out of the city because they can't afford anything are we changing our attitudes with with smart building
9: I think we are but I also think that the Nick Nano's poll is is a more accurate reflection of what people who aren't in the bubble Actually, want and if you look at it, to me the most glaring uh, result of the now there were 700 people that were polled, and that means that it's accurate. I think they say by of three percent, nineteen out of twenty times. So it's it's just a sample, but I think it's a it's a good indication of where most, especially young people, um, uh, what they feel about housing. They still want, 75% of the respondents still want to be in a single detached home. And are we, our generation, live in single detached homes? Is that not the end
0: of the discussion right there, though, Donna? I mean, to me, that says it all. Enough said. Now let's figure out a way to do it smartly.
9: I agree. I mean, that's my opinion. And don't forget, we can still have and should still Yes. High-rise, mid-rise, low-rise, multiple units. But there are ways of building homes people can afford. You should still be able to realize the dream of home ownership. And when I say homes people can afford, I'm talking about $500,000. We're not talking about million-dollar homes. So we're talking townhomes, stacked townhomes. But we have to build, and it doesn't have to be on farmland. I represent the largest, the, the riding with the largest rural population and rural landmass. And I also see opportunities to build homes that isn't on prime agricultural. There are ways of doing it. We have to do it. We can't put our head in the sand and say, yeah. oh, we don't want people to move to Hamilton. If if the numbers that we have been told are accurate, and I believe I have no reason to believe they aren't. They were used, in, in, you know, for, and you know how I feel about the LRT. They were used to, to justify the LRT. Then let's use that same number. If it's 230,000 people moving into Hamilton, we have to accommodate them. And for people, and I've spoken to people who've called my office and said, well, just tell them not to move here. And I said, that's fine. Nice. The population is aging, and if you want more PSWs yeah. to take care of you and in a long-term care facility or more nurses in a hospital, they want to live where they work. And if it means that they can't buy a house here, they'll go to Brantford or St. Catharines, and they'll work in the facilities there and then we'll be in big trouble. There are ways of of building smart. Let's take that approach as opposed to saying, too bad, so sad, you have to live in in an apartment building because that isn't fair. I don't think it's what people truly want. And I think that there is a better compromise.
0: You know, it's, it, what, everybody just says we just keep going out and out and out and out and out and out and out, like you're just painting a floor that just keeps going. And, and that's not the case. You can put parkland in there. You can put transportation corridors. You can put farming corridors. You can put infrastructure corridors through all of this. I mean, it just doesn't have to be a copy of what you have. I mean, these cities are all 100 years old. They weren't designed with the same mentality as cities are today. And it's amazing we just don't encourage people to... To, to think smartly and build what the next future city everybody wants.
9: I, that's so valid. It's very true. And there are, you know, idea, um, I would suggest that if we look to other areas around the world where they are doing this, where they don't have the landmass that we have to build these communities, they do know how to build smart communities. They do know how to take advantage of existing infrastructures, transit, et cetera, they know how to make it with parks and walking trails and bike yeah. paths and all of that. And don't forget the people that are buying these homes are paying massive development charges. And those development charges are used to build that type of green infrastructure, if you will. So, uh, you know, it. I, I just don't think we can say sitting in our single detached home, driving uh, in a car, you can't do this. You now must live on the twenty eighth floor or the forty seventh yeah. floor in a in a high rise and raise your family. I don't think it's
4: fair.
0: And we don't uh, have to pave over par- yeah, and we don't have to pave over paradise to get this done. it's it, It's amazing how, again, the extreme, extremes have taken over the discussion. Sorry, Donna, we're out of time. Donna Skelly with his MPP, Flamborough Glambrook. Thanks so much, Donna. Be well.
9: Anytime. you be well.
0: Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing that, uh, very excited. About the news in regard to the Grey Cup times two. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know if this was talked about. It's the first that I had heard of it. Uh, and it's fascinating that it, it just came, it was announced, and here we are celebrating as opposed to debating it for two or three weeks or months or what have you, whether we want to do it. Uh, and that is, uh, Hamilton will get two Grey Cups, one in 20, uh, 2021 later on in December. And of course, in 2023 to get full value and be able to have the complete gray cup experience and not one in a global pandemic let's bring in scott radley now scott thanks for the time hope you're well hey how are you scott i'm doing well you must be ecstatic about this i think this is a great idea and I kudos to them for for just presenting it as opposed to debating it for a year and a half
10: no i you know what i agree i i i was just writing about it this afternoon it'll be up on the website soon but i uh, I've sort of described it as a preemptive make good because it's not anyone's fault what happened with yeah. COVID, but you know, 25 years football fans here have waited while the great cup has gone all over the country, except for here. And then the year that they finally decide to have it come here, you end up with COVID and it's like mm. a cosmic joke that it's like, okay, well we finally get it. And then we can't have the party. We can't have the, sh- the festival. We can't have the this, we can't have the that. And so, No, I think it's a terrific idea from the CFL um, that they're going to say, look, you put on the Grey cup this year in the, the word the CFL used in their press release was modified form. And then Mm -hmm. all those ideas that you came to us with that actually sold us on Hamilton hosting the Grey cup, all those ambitious ideas, you'll get to do those in 2023. it, It, you know what, it's, it's the right thing to do, it, it, and it's the fair thing to do, quite honestly. Yeah,
0: and kudos to them for you know, nobody having to fight for it or debate for it or argue. They just did it, and, and I think it, it surprised a lot of people, so kudos to them. Wanted yeah. to ask you your thoughts, uh, hamilton wentworth District School Board, considering uh, altering and debating uh, the dress code. I was joking with the, the roundtable earlier on today. I think they were having this discussion when I was in high school. Your thoughts on the dress code and a review. Is it needed? Or should it be needed, I guess, every few years?
10: Well, let me ask you something. Do you believe in a dress code at all? Do you believe there should be any restrictions or limitations on what people would wear to school?
0: Um, I, I, You know, probably not, simply because only in extreme situations would it even have to be addressed. So, yeah,
10: maybe it's overkill? See, I, I believe there should be some rules. Um, the question is, what are those rules? And... You know, uh, obviously times change. What what might be acceptable today might not have been acceptable ten years ago or twenty. Years but even ago, with school
0: uniform, even with school uniforms, and uh, you know, people in the Catholic system, your skirt's too high. This is open yep. too much. Yep. I mean, you can have the same sort of situations with a
10: uniform. I wore a uniform to school for years, and you know, you know what? When the, but that, that you know, was a I mean, Cub Scout you know, uniform. Yeah, no, that's right. I showed up to my <laughs> Cub Scouts every day. Um, I was that kid. No, the idea of the uniform is that you're trying to make it so no one is different. You don't have status. You just everyone. But the problem is, of course, within that uniform, as you point out, people want to express their individuality. And so you do stuff to be individual with it. You're never going to have exactly the utopian idea that administrators would like that everybody looks exactly the same. The question is to me, and and look, as I say, I understand that we live in slightly different, well, maybe not slightly, we live in different times than we once did. I think there do have to be some rules, because there's always going to be the one or two or three who decide, hey, if there's no rules, look what I can do. But uh, you know what, realistically, in 2021, what those rules are, um, not only do you have to be... Uh, specific, but boy, you got to be careful because if you say the wrong thing or suggest the the wrong rule, um, you are going to you're finding yourself in a mess because now you're body shaming or you're this or you're that. That's it. It's, it's a very it's a very challenging thing to navigate your way through for sure.
0: Even as a parent, I just say to my daughter, the burlap sack, do you have one? What's the problem here? Uh Scott Radley Show is coming up next. And, of course, columnists with your Hamilton. No, they come with the potatoes. And columnists with the Hamilton Spectator. Scott, thanks for the time, as always. Have a great show tonight. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will and Diana and Ted for contributing. Coming up next, CHML News and, of course, the the Scott Radley Show. But as always, on CHML and Hamilton Today, we leave it to you, the good listenership, and Howard, to have the last word.
10: Let's give up on cities and form an agrarian society. Did he see aquarium? What if he can't swim?